0: This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. You guys excited about studying God's Word today? Take out your Bibles and your listening guides. We are in week two of this short four-part series called Money and the Glory of God. As you're turning in your Bibles, you can be turning to Matthew chapter 25. That's where we're going to start today, although we're going to be in several different texts as we see this biblical overview of what God thinks about money and how we use it. Last week, we looked at work, how we earn it. Today, we're going to be looking at money and how we spend it. So if you're anything like me, you may be asking the question, why? So why a series on money? It, perhaps it even surprises you that a church would even be doing a study on money that's not simply based upon asking for more money. Uh, it may surprise you that, be, that we're doing a comprehensive study on money and stewardship. Well, here's why it's so relevant. It's because every one of us has it in some form or fashion. And based on an analysis of government data and other studies, here is the financial state of the average American today. The average American household possesses six to seven thousand dollars in credit card debt. A CNBC study released a couple of years ago found that nearly 80% of households in America live paycheck to paycheck, with 39% of us saying that we don't have enough in savings to cover a $1,000 emergency. Inside the church, for years, studies have shown us that self-identified evangelical Christians give anywhere between 2 and 3% of our incomes to our churches or mission organizations. And according to Christianity Today, 20% of Christians... 20% of Christians give absolutely nothing. And so just from, this, just from this little sampling of our financial lives here in the West, we see that money is a relevant topic because we don't always know what to do with it. We don't always know how to manage it well. And probably for some of us, we are even surprised that the Bible even says anything about these things. And so through this short series, by God's grace, the working of his Holy Spirit through me and in all of us, I want to help change some of those stats. At least in this flock, at least in this body. I want to help us think biblically. But not just think biblically, but to even think worshipfully about the way we work hard to earn money. And then to take that money and to spend it, save it, and generously give it for the glory of God and for the advancement of His mission. Now, I have to give you this disclaimer. So over the next three weeks, today we're going to be looking at spending it for the glory of God. Next week, saving it for the glory of God. And then the third week will be giving it for the glory of God of God. Now in these next 3 weeks, this is not a how-to seminar as much as it is a biblical overview of really seeing God's passion and his heart for how we manage our money. Well, I'll try to be practical along the way, but I don't want to constrain you by just one methodology and trying to say that every decision that I make or what this person makes is somehow a mandate on every single one of us. There are multiplicity of ways that we might apply the text that we're hearing. But we're going to hear what God's heart is on, this, on these matters and how He might lead us to change our hearts and seeking out wise counsel, and aligning ourselves financially under the lordship of Jesus. So this morning, we're going to learn what the Bible teaches us about spending money well. Spending it and budgeting it wisely while avoiding some of the common pitfalls that human beings often fall in when it comes to spending money foolishly. So we're going to start in Matthew 25 because Jesus gives us a parable here. And he's going to use money and resources to make his spiritual points. And so I'm going to start reading in Matthew 25, verse 14. And we're going to spend about half of our time looking at this parable and then the rest of our time looking at several other passages that God would use to instruct us regarding spending money wisely. So beginning in verse 14 of Matthew 25, Jesus says this, For it will be like a man going on a journey, Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with him. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents here, and I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the What starts out as a seemingly innocent object lesson, you end it and you're thinking, Jesus, this seems a little harsh. I mean, this, this guy just, he, he played it safe. And he's reaping this much punishment from you. What is going on here? Well, let me just say very briefly, when we read the parables, understand what a parable is. A parable is a story that Jesus uses appealing to common everyday life situations or cultural observations and making a big spiritual principle coming from that. We must always be careful that we do not overly interpret the parables. The parables are never meant to take line by line a a spiritual application from every single line and how it relates to today. We're looking for the big picture principles. And the big picture principles that we learn from the parable of the talents is that God gives us everything that we have and he cares about what we do with it. And he wants us to use it for the the advancement of his kingdom for our own provision and for the generosity, for extending generosity towards others. And so I don't want us to get lost in some of the details here and miss the big picture of what Jesus is teaching. And so, since we're not going to spend all of our time on this passage today, I want to focus in on some of these big picture principles. And so, the, the first big principle that I want us to learn today and a biblical foundation for spending money well is simply this that God is the source. Of all of your resources. And you may think, Chris, that is really elementary. It is the elementary principles oftentimes that trip us up the most. We, we need to constantly be reminded of the simple. We need to be constantly reminded of, of, of the, the basic foundational tenets of our faith. God is the source of all of our resources. You see this. In the text, right? So look at verse 14. It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them money, property. No, there's a personifier here, his property. And, And so the master is entrusting to these servants his resources, his property. And so here's what we're going to learn this morning. The source of your money is not your employer. It's not ultimately your paycheck. It's not ultimately the inheritance from your maternal grandparents. Here's why a few things here. Number one, God is the owner. He is the owner. Verse 14 said it. But this truth is echoed in so many other parts of the scriptures. The psalmist writes this in Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. Haggai, chapter 2, one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. God says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18, just very simply puts it this way. For it is God." who gives you power to get wealth. Now, so this is putting into more a clearer focus from what I talked about last week. Do you remember last week when I talked about how we should be working hard? And we got down towards the end of the message, and I said that we should work very hard and diligently in order to provide what I call dependent independence. Meaning that we should work in such a way and operate such a way financially that I am seeking to be independent and not being dependent on anyone for my needs. But at the same time, recognizing that anything and everything that I get monetarily or provisionally is ultimately from the hand of God. That God is the owner of all things. And so what this point is putting into clearer focus is what we started thinking about Last week. So God is the owner, but then this parable also teaches us that we are the stewards. We are the stewards or the managers. You might want to use that word. And so in this case, it's as if we are working we are working for a, a very wealthy benefactor, and we are the managers of His portfolio. And so each one of us has a part to play in this. Verse 16, the text says that the first steward, the first manager, traded with him. The NIV translates it, he put his money to work. So that steward, that manager, put the ultimate owner, we, he put his resources to work. And so that means that the first two servants did more than simply take the master's resources, and give it to Edward Jones or to Fidelity and just let them work the financial magic. Instead, as D.A. Carson puts it, they actually set up some business and worked with the capital to make it grow. And So here's the picture. God, who owns absolutely every dime and dollar on planet Earth, he is the one who ultimately owns the bank account. And to each one of his children on planet Earth, he is allotting a specific portion of his portfolio. And what he wants you to do with that portfolio is to manage it well. He wants you to make it grow. He wants you to be wise with it. He wants you to invest it well. He wants you to be generous with it. He wants you to be wise with it. He wants you to provide your needs. He wants you to provide for your family's needs. He wants you to advance his mission. So God cares about the resources he entrusts to us. While it's in our care, we are to take it, work it for temporal good, and eternal rewar- return. Temporal good and eternal return. And here's one last principle here. When you look at the parable of the talents, each one of us is accountable for our individual allotment. We are accountable for our allotment. Verse 15 To one, he gave five talents to another two, to each, and, and to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. Friends, here's what this simply teaches us this morning. You may look at your bank account and decry what's in there. You may look at your neighbors and wish that you lived in a bigger house or you shake your fist at God and wonder why yours doesn't have an extra digit in the sum total. You're not accountable for your neighbor's allotment. You're not not accountable for your roommate's allotment. You're not accountable for Bill Gates' allotment. You are accountable for your allotment. Yours. You say, well, my allotment's not... That much, yes, but you're accountable for it. You're accountable for it. You're accountable for what you've been given, what you're doing with it, how generous you are, how wise you are. Now, there are many more things that we could study and learn from the parable of the, ta- the, parable of the talents. But for the sake of our study this morning, know this, God owns it all. He entrusts us with our individual allotments And he wants us to be wise with it and to spend it, invest it, save it, and to give it well for his glory. And that leads us to the second big principle I want us to see today. Not only is God the source of all of your resources, God's glory is the goal of all of your stewardship. God's glory is the goal of all of your stewardship. So... You can say, what's the goal? Is the goal just to simply be a good investor? Is the goal to simply be able to retire very comfortably? Is the goal simply to leave your children or your grandchildren a great inheritance? If that is your goal, if any one of those goals are your ultimate goal, then I would say that you have a viewpoint of money that is no different than most people living in the secular world. That is not the ultimate goal of being wise stewards. Managing our money well. Spending it wisely. The ultimate goal is the glory of God. We want to glorify and worship Him. Not only when we're singing on Sunday morning. Not only when we're studying the text of Scripture. Or when we're bowing our heads to pray. In what we deem as the holy things of God. Or the spiritual disciplines. I want you to see today. That the way we save, the way we spend, the way we give, that this is a part of our Christian discipleship as well. And we want to glorify and worship God through those means too. So His glory is the goal. Now what I want to do through the, the last bulk of our time this morning is I want us to see four pitfalls that we as human beings oftentimes fall into when it comes to spending money foolishly. And the reality is... Every one of us in this room have fallen into one of these categories before or multiple ones of these categories before. And the reality could be today that there are many of us in this room who fit into several of these categories today. And so from looking at these warnings in Scripture, I want to implore you and pull you away from these pitfalls so that you would spend money wisely in God's sight. So here's the first pitfall The first warning here. The scriptures would tell us to resist being an overspender. Resist being an overspender. Now, we might overspend for a couple of different reasons. Let's talk about a couple of them. One, we might overspend because we just simply live beyond our means. And we just rack up debt after debt after debt in order to attain a lifestyle that we think is going to make us look wealthier than we actually are. Dave Ramsey just puts it this point blankly. He says, we buy things we don't need with money we don't have in order to impress people we don't even like. And therefore, we end up being an overspender. You know, I've shared a lot of my story along the way, but I grew up in a family without much means at all. I shared with you much of our poverty uh, last week and last week's sermon. But I remember a, a seminal moment for me, and I remember this very clearly. I remember when I was in middle school, That my mother, who did not have much at all, she didn't have much of an education either. Uh, She was very much a blue-collar worker her entire life and did not have much means. And I remember the moment that she got her first credit card. And I remember her opening it up and pulling it out of the envelope. And she looked at all of it. There were four of us in the house. There were it was she and my, my stepdad and my brother and me. And so she looks at all of us and says, we got our first credit card. So everybody, we're going to the mall tonight and everyone gets something. And I remember that. And so we as kids, I, w- I was this young teenager and we go to the mall and I picked out at JCPenney this awesome orange and white tie-dyed t-shirt. And I was all the talk of seventh grade, you know? And I remember that moment. And see, that moment doesn't leave you because when you grow up not having much and all of a sudden you have a means to get stuff that you didn't have before, it's not always a good thing. And so when I graduated college, I graduated high school and went off to college, I remember the first time I stopped by the booth in the student union and I signed up for my first MasterCard. And I remember getting that little guy in the mail and giving that $3,000 credit limit and it only took me a semester to max it out. And then I got another one and I maxed it out. And by the time I graduated college, I was sitting with $10,000 of credit card debt, not to mention my student loans and I spent the next decade, my 20s, paying off the foolish lifestyle that I had attained for myself as a young, unwise college student. I know what it means to be an overspender. And oftentimes we're overspending because we're trying to attain a lifestyle for ourselves that we just simply can't afford. We can't pay for it, but we think that we need it because everyone else needs it, and then we come to financial ruin Proverbs 22, verse 7 says, The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. The Bible is not a proponent of unnecessary debt that you simply cannot afford or pay for. But we might also overspend, not only because we try to attain a lifestyle that we can't afford, but we also might overspend because we simply don't budget well. And this means that every one of us is on an equal playing field. It's not just about the person who doesn't have much money. It could be you could be making six figures today. And because you don't budget well and you don't know where all of your money is going, you end up overspending. You don't keep track of things. You don't budget. John Maxwell, who is a great uh, uh, speaker and author on uh, areas of leadership, He simply defines a budget this way. A budget is people telling their money where to go instead of wondering where it went. A budget means that we actually sit down and we calculate what all of our monetary inflows are for the month. And then we calculate what our responsibilities are. And we give those things categories so that we can track what's coming in and what's coming out. And I would just tell you this morning, if you are not on a budget or if you've never considered budgeting in your life, maybe today, today's sermon would be a nudge in that direction. You might say, Chris, I only make $200 a week in a part-time job. Well, you can still budget. You still know what's coming in and you know what has to go out. The Bible actually talks about this. Proverbs 21 verse 5 says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. But everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. You see, when I was younger, and I was looking at the example of my parents and the foolish example that they were financially, and then at the foolish example that I simply followed, I was very hasty with money. I was very hasty financially. I wasn't responsible. I wasn't sitting down and mapping it out. I didn't have a plan. The Bible tells us that we should be diligently planning financially, no matter how much money we have. Luke 14, 28, Jesus himself says, for which of you desiring to build a tower doesn't first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. You see, Jesus advocated for budgeting as well, that we know what comes in and we know what goes out. Now, here's the deal. There there are a multiplicity of lifestyles, life stages, and age ranges in our congregation this morning. Whether you are a college student, just first figuring out some things financially, or whether you are in your sunset years and you're you're already living in retirement and thinking about inheritances, here's the reality. Budgeting looks different for different life stages, how old we are, and life statuses. So for example, a budget for a single person is going to look different than a budget between a married couple. And a married couple without children, that budget is going to look very differently than a budget with a married couple with kids or multiple kids. Regardless, we should budget. Even though it may look differently, even though we may have different responsibilities, and there may be different uh, things that we're considering for the future... I want to encourage you to start thinking about budgeting. Think about making some financial planning because the Bible says that God is honored when we do that. Because when we don't do that, we end up being an overspender. And the Bible would say that's a pitfall that we don't want to fall into. Number two, a second pitfall is this. It's kind of like the opposite end of the spectrum. See, we need to be resist overspending, but we also need to resist being a hoarder. And the Bible is very clear on saving money and preparing for the future. And we'll look at that more intently next week. But there is a fine line between responsibly saving and simply being Christian hoarders. And what we end up doing is we start saving up so much for a rainy day that we don't know how to spend money and actually enjoy the sunshine. And the Bible would call us away from that mentality as well. In Matthew 25, in the parable of the talents, if you go down to verse 24, you might want to just make this note. The wicked servant was ultimately rebuked for inaction. He just went and buried the money in the ground, which was actually a very regular practice of Jewish culture at that time. They didn't have banks with interest-bearing savings accounts at that time. And so if you had things of value money that you wanted to save, an inheritance that you wanted to, uh, to pass on to, you would just go bury it in the ground. And so what the, the wicked servant was ultimately being uh, chastised for by Jesus is that he didn't do anything with it. He just stored it up and just let it uh, attain rust, and, and it wasn't able to be used. Here's a big lesson for us this morning. God has given us resources to use them. To promote good and enjoyment, not only in our lives, but our family's lives and for the sake of his mission. And so, yes, we want to save and we'll look at that next week. But we could save so much that we just become hoarders. And we just sit on wealth that God wants us to use for other things. If you turn back in the Old Testament to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 13 the writer Solomon says this There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. That's the hoarder. That's the hoarder who is saving up so much for a rainy day that he doesn't know how to live in the sunshine. You see, God has trusted to us his resources to spend, to use. We may be tempted to to hear this or read this passage and think that, well, it doesn't apply to me because he says the rich do this. And this is that 1% that that senators and presidential candidates talk about all the time. (laughs) Not so fast. Not so fast. I want us to think about this reality this morning because it completely transforms the way we approach the issue of money and wealth from a biblical standpoint. I want you to know that if you were even lower middle class in the United States of America, you were among the 1% of all of human history. You're like, what? Yeah. It's how wealthy our country is, is that even those of us in America who have very little, we are still much wealthier than so many different countries in all the world. And biblically speaking, when you look at what the average lower middle class and even those in poverty in America today, now this is maybe a surprising thing and even hard to hear for some of us. Even for those of us in poverty in America, if we live in an apartment and we have running water and electricity and indoor plumbing, we are among the wealthiest of the globe today. And so when the Bible talks about the rich in this age, be very careful that we don't just pass the buck and say that the Bible is talking about someone other than me. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, you go on down to verse 19. He writes, Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. Again, God has given us resources to enjoy them. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Paul, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who graciously provides us with everything to enjoy. This is the passage that completely transformed my viewpoint on money. After making such financially foolish decisions in my early 20s. For a long time, I I had this oppressive viewpoint of finances and money and buying things. And so anytime I would want anything that was nicer or something that I didn't need, I just felt guilt for it. And and I would either not buy it or I would buy it and just feel guilty because I did it. And it was because of just so many years of just bad decision making. You know, we oftentimes do this, don't we? So we're, we're in the box store, right? We're in the big box store, and we make our, eye down, make our way down the uh, entertainment aisle, and we see the 65-inch OLED TV that's now in stunning 4K, ultimate, high definition, right? And then we start realizing, well, I really want that. It would be great to watch the Patriots next season on that. Yeah, but I don't really need it. And so then we start wrestling through it, right? And so then we start coming up with some crazy justification for getting it. Well, you know, I could host a Bible study in my house. And what we could do is we could use those new video series that are attached where the the author is actually teaching some of the material. And David Platt or Francis Chan would look so much better in stunning 4K high-definition TV. And so because I would have that TV, the Bible study could be in my house. And then as we're having that Bible study, people's lives could be changed. And they could really start thinking about how to live for Jesus. And they may become... Uh, passionate about overseas missions and then they could go to Africa or India where water wells are needed to be built among the most disenfranchised in the world and so ultimately me getting this tv is actually helping to cure diseases or bringing water and food to those who are actually hungry in the earth so actually this would be a good spiritual decision for me so that's ultimately why I got the tv You're laughing because you know this is true. Here's what I believe that verses like Ecclesiastes 5 and 1 Timothy 6, when the Bible is telling us that when God gives us resources graciously for our enjoyment, is that it is actually quite possible to spend money on things we don't necessarily need, when we have the right mentality of thanksgiving and gratitude from God towards God for what He's given us, and then enjoying those things rightly and sharing them with others, we have no need for some crazy justification in order to purchase things we don't really need. It's a way that God actually lavishes His grace upon His children. So here's the deal. The Bible would call us to resist being an overspender, but also to resist being a hoarder. And so if you have money in the bank, you don't have to go into crazy, unnecessary debt in order to buy it. And you are already living graciously and responsibly with your resources. It's okay to buy things and enjoy them. Thirdly, third pitfall, I'll be very quick here. Resist being an evader. Resist being an evader. A person who is a financial evader is someone who has a bill or someone who takes out a loan and then does not pay said bill or pay that loan or pay those taxes. Listen to what the Bible teaches us here. Psalm 37, verse 21. The wicked borrows but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives You think God doesn't care about the way we spend money? I mean, read that. You borrow money or you have a financial responsibility and you just choose not to pay it or let it go? The Bible says that's a wicked practice. The wicked borrows but does not pay back. Romans 13, 7, Paul says, Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. For those of us in the room who are more conservative and just bash taxes all the time, we can debate what they should be, but if you owe taxes, pay them. The Bible says pay them. It's your responsibility to do that. And it honors God. So here's the reality. We glorify God. We honor God by honoring and paying our financial commitments and responsibilities. So resist being an evader. And lastly, a, third, a fourth pitfall where I believe every one of us in this room probably falls in some shape, form, or fashion today is resist being a coveter. Resist being a coveter. A coveter is someone who looks at something that someone else has and you want it to and it consumes you until you get it. Or, You look at what someone else has that you don't have and you're envious, you're jealous, you long for it. And then what that leads you to do is to make financially erroneous decisions like getting into unnecessary debt, becoming an overspender, getting yourself in financial turmoil. So the Bible would call us away from bad practices like overspending or being a hoarder. But the Bible also calls us away from Uh, uh, destructive mindsets and dispositions like coveting Jesus in Luke 12 he says take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions so that's Jesus and so when Paul writes in first Timothy 6 Paul must have read Jesus Paul must have known the teachings of Jesus because listen to what Paul writes beginning in 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Many of us have heard that passage before. Boy, it really changes it when we read it in the context, don't, doesn't it? We must be careful about how much we long for things we don't have. We must be careful that we don't desire things that, that we don't necessarily need, but we just want to measure up with our neighbor or our roommates. And the reason, because Paul says, is it breeds in us a discontentment. And what we do is we, we mistaken. We mistaken lavish blessings. And we call them Necessities. We take necessities when reality they're simply niceties. We need to keep them in proper balance. One of my favorite prayers in the Proverbs is in Proverbs chapter 30. And I'm going to close with this passage today because I, before we read it on the screens, let me just kind of set it up this way. I really believe if you are looking for a life verse for finances or God's thematic desire and verse for His people, it is Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. So I want you to star this. You may even underline it in your scriptures. You may even seek out to memorize this passage because I think it's that important in thinking about money and possessions. Here it is. This is a prayer. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. God, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? And lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. What a great financial prayer to pray. The thing I love about this prayer is it's very open-ended. Friends, there's not just one financial plan that every single person in this room should follow. There there are a multiplicity of families represented here, giftings, abilities, allotments God has given to us. And so the way in which you budget and spend and save and give is not the same way that you do it. But the principles are the same. And the principle is, God, let me work honestly Remove from me falsehood and lying. Father, give me neither poverty nor riches. Meaning that, Lord, no matter what I get, no matter how much money I have, may I always be dependently independent. May I not have so much money that I forget that you even exist or that you give me resources. Some of us in America are so financially secure that we have forgotten what it means to even look at God And expect him to provide for us. Because we're resting on what I have built. And what I have saved. The writer of Proverbs is saying. God guard me from that mentality. Or if I have very little. If I have very little. And I am in poverty. And I'm on government uh, help and subsidies right now. God guard me. From stealing. Or being covetous in such a way. Or even profaning you and blaming you because of what I have. Regardless of where I am on the financial scale. Lord, ultimately, may I honor you with what I have. That's ultimately what the writer of Proverbs is getting at. And so friends, here's the bottom line this morning. It's the same bottom line as last week. Growing in our approach to work and money is a crucial part of Christian discipleship. This is not just the worldly side of us that God doesn't care about. Just to do whatever we want, whenever we want, and just do whatever we want. It's a part of Christian discipleship. And the way you approach it, the way you earn it, the way you spend it, save it and give it, matters to God. And is even a good barometer with which we can measure our Christian maturity. is how we approach this issue. And so here's our prayer this morning. Father, transform our hearts to glorify you with our work and money. And specifically today, so that we may spend it well. That we may plan well. Budget well. It makes me think about Jesus Christ. Because the same Jesus who says, Who among us would build a tower without sitting down and planning out and budgeting out to make sure that we have what we need to accomplish it, is the same Jesus who the scriptures say, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross for the sake of sinful men and women like you and me. Jesus sat down. Jesus measured out. Jesus budgeted his life. Jesus budgeted his resources. Who, 2 Corinthians says, that though he was rich, made himself poor for the sake of us, so that we who are spiritually in poverty might have spiritual abundance and wealth in his name. And so this morning, I want want to point you to Jesus. Because you may hear all this today and you're weighed down by it. And what I want you to know is the same Jesus who commands these things is ready and willing today to give you the grace to radically change your life and your approach to money and finances, yes, but also your entire life. And so if you're here today and you want to talk to someone spiritually about what God is doing in your heart in response to the gospel, would you just reach out to a friend today and say, hey, I really would like to talk to somebody. Can you help me? Would you point me towards a leader? Or perhaps you would approach one of us today, And say I'd really like to get some help spiritually. You may be here today and you're thinking about budgeting and finances and all of this. And you may not know where to begin. I want you to know that there are people in our church who are very wise in this sphere. And they would love to sit down with you and help you map out some better strategies for the future. Regardless of what God is doing in your heart and life today. Would you be obedient and respond? Don't ignore it. Don't suppress it. Respond and make it known so that you can start living the life that God created you to live. Father, today, transform our hearts, our minds, our dispositions so that our lives may be transformed in order to glorify you with our work, with our money, and ultimately with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.